Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm sure you were just thrilled to watch the microphoning process and the water pouring process. Uh, and I guarantee it'll get even more exciting from there. Uh, I want to thank you all to the, or welcome you all to the Cato Institute, uh, both everybody here in the Hayek Auditorium and everybody uh, joining us online uh, and also on Twitter. Uh, I'm Neil McCluskey. I'm the director of the Center for Educational Freedom uh, here at the Cato Institute. Uh, joining me today is Gabriel Heller-Salgren, uh, author of the book, Real Finished Lessons, The True Story of an Education Superpower. Uh, if you didn't get one on your way in, they are, you probably saw at the front desk, so definitely pick one of these up. Um, and I think that if you've, you know, if you've followed education over the last several years, uh, you've probably heard a lot about Finland, uh, which sort of in the, seemingly in the blink of an eye, leapt from kind of educational obscurity, you might say, to kind of rock stardom uh, in education. Um, uh, but in the last few months, it's, it's also sort of faded from view a bit. Uh, and so Mr. Sogren has researched, uh, I think, the, the country in depth, as well as lots of the analyses that have sprung from its success. Uh, and he offers a lot of important insights into what did and maybe did not happen in Finland that both fueled its ascent and that may have something to do with its recent drops. Uh, Gabriel is the Director of Research at the Center for the Study of Market Reform of Education, or CMRE, uh, and is affiliated researcher at the Research Institute of Industrial Economics in Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, he's also a PhD student at the London School of Economics. He's the author of Incentivizing Excellence, School Choice and Education Quality, uh, quality uh, which discusses the conditions that need to prevail for choice to produce high achievement. And of course, he's also the author of Real Finished Lessons, The True Story of an Education Superpower, uh, published by the Center for Policy Studies. He's also the author of the paper Schooling for Money, Swedish Education Reform, and the Role of the Profit Motive, for which he was awarded the Arthur Selden Award for Excellence. Uh, Gabriel is the editor of the CMRE Monthly Research Digest and of Economic Affairs, a quarterly journal published by the Institute of Economic Affairs at the University of Buckingham. Welcome, Gabriel. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Uh, the way things are going to go is Gabriel and I, we're going to have a bit of a discussion up here, sort of an interview, question <coughs> and answer just from me. Um, but then we'll be opening things up to the audience, which is, of course, all of you out here, but also anybody on Twitter uh, using the hashtag FinEdFacts, FinEdFacts, and that's two N's in Fin, uh, can send us uh, questions. Um, and we have my research assistant, I think, is out there in the audience somewhere, and she will raise her hand, and we can get questions from people on Twitter. And then... Uh, if you're, you're called on, uh, please wait for the microphone to arrive, but we're going to do something a little extra special in today's event. Rather than my saying, please just ask a question, I will ask you to identify yourself. If you have a question, that's great, but we'll even give you a chance to offer something of a statement if you want to make it into a statement. Not too long. I reserve the right to cut off any statement that goes on for too long or I just don't like... Um, but I'm going to try not to do that so we can sort of make this as conversational and interactive as possible. That said, as I just mentioned, I'll be asking the first several questions. We'll have a bit of discussion here, and then we'll open it up for all of you. Um, and so, with that, on to our interview portion. Uh, and I guess the first thing is, 
You know, I read your bio, and so we've got the basic facts, but what, what got you interested in education, and, and, and what's your background that may have influenced that? Well, my interest in education, I think, stems from my long-held belief that it's a fundamental for economic prosperity in the long run, human capital development. But more kind of specifically, I wrote that paper the Swedish, uh, Swedish, um, uh, about Swedish education reform, schooling for money, uh, partly because I was interested in understanding um, whether the profit motive had an impact in education or had a role to play in education. Uh, and then from there, it kind of just rolled on. So that you know, generally, I was interested in, in education. Um, but of course, that paper was fundamental for furthering my interest. Mm -hmm. And why, what's your interest in Finland? And maybe tell us, are you are you Finnish? Oh, yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not Finnish. I'm Swedish. Uh, so uh, as a neighboring country who's been performing quite poorly in PISA in the last couple of years, of course, it's a very interesting uh, country to study. Um, uh, and also Finland because, um, I, well, it's one of those countries that became famous because of PISA. I mean, right before uh, PISA, uh, the first PISA results came out in December 2001, just for everyone, what's PISA? PISA is this international survey uh, published by the OECD. It was established to kind of, as a, in response to demand for a reliable metric of, of, uh, of student performance in all these member countries. Um, and it was first published in December 2001, and it kind of created this Finnish frenzy, uh, if, you, if you may call it that. Um, and since then, Finland rose to stardom. So obviously... It was interesting to find out how this country, which you know is in Northern Europe, performed on par essentially with the best East Asian countries. Um, so both as a you know as a as a Swedish-speaking person, I also have a you know we we Swedes have a specific relationship to Finland, part because we owned it once up in a time, and there's still a minority uh, speaking Swedish, and of course that's quite relevant for understanding our Finnish um, performance in PISA because those. Swedish speakers have tended to perform worse. Um, and I discussed it a little bit in the book. But so that's the general essence of it. Well, then let's cut right to it since you've already started to mention part of it. Um, what is it you think that makes Finnish education work or maybe not work, mm. or at the very least produce the, the PISA results that have got so many people talking about Finland for, for about a decade? Yeah, I mean, okay. So what I do in the book, I think, is to first look at the other person's uh, kind of thesis, Posse Solberg is a similar name, and people ask me, are we related, but we're not. Um, this book right That here, book since, right there. Since you pointed at it, Finnish Lessons. Yes, Finnish Lessons. Of course, my response is real Finnish Lessons. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of discussion um, regarding what they didn't do. No school choice, no market reforms, no accountability, all of these things that they tried to emphasize as lessons, and he tried to emphasize as lessons, and I just knew, because I know the economics of education research, that that didn't really, that wasn't really consistent with what the general research picture said, right? So I said, okay, there is no, first of all, no evidence of this, but what I find and what I argue in the book is that these kind of, the, the scores or the reasons behind the scores go far back in time, I mean, to the 19th century when Finland essentially is an autonomous region of Russia. Uh, it had inherited institutions from Sweden, um, so it's kind of a quasi-state. It didn't have a national identity. So you had a bifurcated society, 15% of Swedish speakers, 80, who basically dominate culture and politics, 85% of 
of uh, uh, Finnish speakers who are divorced from that, no culture to speak of, no Finnish speaking culture to speak of. In that situation, the Swedish speakers realized we can no longer be Swedes. We don't want to become Russians, we have to become Finnish, Finns. So they started to kind of emphasize the Finnishness, and in that, in that endeavor, teachers became absolutely fundamental. Okay, so they became kind of the vanguard of the nation. Uh, so this is the essence of it. Um, they were extremely kind of educated, uh, the draconian selection methods, and also draconian kind of uh, uh, you know, uh, codes of conduct. When you were accepted to teacher education, you were not allowed to smoke, you were not allowed to dance, you were not allowed to uh, date, and you were not allowed, to, unless there were other teachers. So they tried to create these model citizens um, based on this pedagogical idea from Germany. So it goes back to all of this, right? But then we also come into why they started improving from the mid-20th century, and I argue that's uh, partly because of this radical economic transformation that changed Finnish society from an agrarian society into post-industrialization very quickly, basically replicating almost the East Asian fundamental story. And in those kind of situations, you see strong emphasis on education, and you see the culture doesn't really catch up in the beginning when it's that fast, the economic trajectory. So if you look at Finnish culture, it's still very agrarian in comparison to, for example, Sweden. Um, and that also, well, it shows in education as well. Finnish schools have been extremely hierarchical. Teaching has been very traditional. And this is something that we haven't heard of, right? And it just happens to be the case that the research suggests that those methods are good for standardized test scores. Now, we can discuss whether or not that's how we should measure success, but I, I do think uh, all of these things are interrelated. So the historical context, socioeconomic trajectory, and the cultural trajectory that follow. All right, I, we'll talk a little bit more about all that. I did, though, I think maybe the most important question is, because you mentioned, you mentioned that the, the book by Pazi Salberg, uh, your Gabriel Salgren. Uh, my question was, this is very difficult for people to keep straight. Sure. Have either you or uh, Mr. Salberg ever considered changing your name? <laughs> Something like easy to remember like Jones or maybe McCluskey? We haven't. Uh, I added Heller back to, because that's part of my name as well. Sometimes I put H. Solgren, but now it's Heller Solgren. But no, we, I, I haven't. And I, I think he actually, they actually changed the name. I'm not sure if he's a Finnish, because obviously Solberg is a Swedish name. It's not a Finnish name. So he's, he might be one of those Finnish names. I'm not sure about that, but no, so I haven't. I haven't. Maybe well, you should can just consider yeah. changing. But well, I'll, I'll write to him too. To, to, I don't know who should do it. Just somebody should, so we don't get confused. Um, what, what, to what extent, so you talk about the, the change in, in culture, the change of economics. What struck me as I started to look into Finland was, you know, a lot of this change in the test score seemed to somewhat coincide with the rise of Nokia. How much is it's just, maybe even just the fortunes of that company? How much effect does that have, do you think? Or connected with that, is there just good fortune in that you have the rise of cellular technology at the same time that the Soviet Union was sort of disintegrating, which, as I understand it, it was a major influence on Finland. Yes, I mean, I, I don't, do not necessarily think they're related. If they're related, it's some, some third factor. I mean, if you look at the, what, the people who worked for Nokia and the people who started Nokia, when were they in school in Finland? It was far, far, far back. Um, and in, in what way are you suggesting that Nokia, the rise of Nokia, would have contributed to high performance? Well, 
Maybe, but I, I do argue that uh, it's, it's specifically these kind of rapid uh, development trajectories that, regardless of how it starts, um, tend to lead to this kind of strong emphasis on education. You have, in Finland, you have some of the biggest gaps, uh, well, intergenerational gaps in terms of uh, educational attainment. Uh, and, and in those situations, obviously, you know, you can escape poverty via education. So I think that's the fundamental lesson. But uh, I would be interested to hearing more about your theory about Nokia. But I, I don't have any... I don't have any uh, well, I mean, to the extent that you, you talk about and others that, that Finland had this major economic improvement, mm -hmm. and at least what we think of when we think of... I th well, maybe I can only speak for myself, but when you think of well, what's the major industry I know of from Finland or the major company, you think of Nokia and you think of the, their sort of meteoric rise. Mm -hmm. And considering that Finland's a pretty small country, I'm not saying I've looked at this rigorously, but you could think, well, it, is that really the major driver of economic improvement? We do know that there are high correlations between socioeconomic status, your, your economic status, how well off you are, and how you do on tests. Ooh, so at least sure. from a superficial standpoint, you might think, well, maybe the rise of this particular company in this industry spurred economic growth that then enabled people to focus more on education and improve scores. It, it might have been a, uh, one of the contributing factors, but again, you see scores rising already from 1960 onwards, well before Nokia. Mm -hmm. And well before this, uh, you know, new post-industrial technological uh, revolution. Um, so there's something going on in Finland from the mid-1900s uh, onwards. And, I, and it is this kind of basic change from an, from an agrarian society uh, into an industrial society and then into post-industrial society in a very short period of time. So yes, it might be something, it might have something to do with it, but um, I think there are other reasons that are more important. Well, and then can you talk a little bit more about, and I, and, and I believe you talked about it in the book, the, the unique sort of situation that Finland was in, kind of, it struck me as kind of pulled between the poles of first of Sweden and then of the Soviet Union, and, and trying to maintain sort of a national hmm. identity uh, to, to fight back against those things, and a lot of it, it sounded like, was focused on education. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, I mean, as I already mentioned, the idea behind teachers uh, or the role of teachers in Finnish society was that they were supposed to be model citizens, um, uh, partly because there was no Finnish culture. So they had to, but not only in, in schools, uh, because, you know, Finnish schooling provision was very unequal between regions. So in early, well, 1900, I think 25% of the population had undergone primary education, 34% of the children were enrolled. And so all, as late as 1937, you had 15 or 13% who didn't attend primary school. In that situation, obviously, uh, teachers became fundamental. To, they had to reach out outside of school and also teach parents and so on and so forth. So that's the first thing in terms of the, the, the uh, location of the country. No, absolutely. Um, it, being an autonomous region of Russia, seeking uh, independence, um, uh, you know, education became kind of a passive resistance ground against Russification, a policy that was in place basically uh, between late 1800s and 1917 when Finland became independent. 
um, which was based the idea that the, the Tsar wanted to bring back the, the autonomy they had. So education and schools became somewhat of a resistance grounds and teachers became crucially important. Then, of course, you have the continuous struggle between Finland and Russia and then the Soviet Union and also Nazi Germany. Um, they get inv invaded in 1939, endorse an invasion of the Soviet Union. Then the year after, they fight back in the continuation war during World War II uh, as a, basically a part of the operation of Barbarossa. Uh, they attack the Soviet Union and wants to go further. And this is important. Why they do this is partly because they, wanna, uh, they, they go venture into East Karelia. And East Karelia is this region where they speak somewhat like a Finnish, similar to Finnish, a language similar to Finnish. And they, um, this was where all the non-Swedish, all the or the, Finnish, the, the true Finnish culture that had been poisoned by the Swedes were, right? Mm -hmm. So they attack, then, get back, then basically get pushed back, all of these things um, afterwards. That's, I think, is the crucial point, which is that they, they essentially uh, have to balance this act uh, of being a democratic Western country so close to the Soviet Union uh, and in this situation. Absolutely, education was fundamental. And again, I think that via the cultural aspect. So they have this word in Finnish called sisu, which is, um, basically means determination, perseverance. And this has come to encapsulate the kind of Finnish character ever since the struggle for nationalism. And sisu, it, it just in, in times of adversity, just work hard. Hard work, hard work, hard work. It's quite East Asian. If you, mm -hmm. Also the cultural similarities between Asia in terms of uh, you know, the levels of extraversion are kind of similar to Japan and Hong Kong. Um, and there's a joke about that, actually, in Finland, because they, they, they believe it, you know, too. And there's this, uh, basically these two guys who, who see each other on the street and haven't seen each other for years. They decide to catch up, and they go to a pub. They have one beer. They don't say anything. They just drink. A second beer, nothing. Then right before the third beer, one guy raises his glass and says, Skupje, which means cheers. And the other guy looks at him and says, are we here to talk or to drink? And that kind of, that kind of encapsulates the, the Finnish mentality. So they believe it too, and they have been much more introvert and kind of just get, you know, they don't prefer talking, they rather, rather do stuff and work hard. It's too bad that, that we're not having an afternoon forum because there usually is drinking afterward. We could, we could <laughs> test that on, on Americans. But it, we do have sandwiches and beverages. Sure. Maybe work the joke that way. Um, so, but what the, the Sisu, if I'm saying it right, it sounds like something actually that we hear uh, at least over the last few years more about in this country, which is fostering grit. Mm -hmm. In other words, just sort of a stick to itiveness when things get difficult. Would you say then that that is something that is uh, in abundance in, in Finnish culture, that may not be, maybe even in Swedish culture, and that's a big driver? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that it has been important for uh, Scandinavian culture as well. I mean, Finland is not technically part of Scandinavia, but it, I, I'm just saying, I think because of this economic trajectory, they were poor much longer. Um, I think that cultural kind of um, uh, notion definitely became more, has been more important in fin Finnish society uh, than in Scandinavian society. Um, and my, I mean, my, one of my arguments is that, you know, in the beginning, you see this kind of, you know, hard work grit occurring, mm -hmm. right? But at some point, there seems to be a threshold. There is some evidence for this as well. And with the establishment of a, of a welfare state, the idea is that there takes a lag, there's a lag between 
uh, kind of in expansion of welfare state and also well, increasing income before uh, this has an impact on the work ethic. And after a while, you want your kids to have fun. You don't want your kids to be super stressed in school. Um, so this, I think, you know, Sweden certainly reached that level way before Finland. And I mean, it's, it's uh, one of my explanations to, for the decline is partly that this culture, you know, culture has caught up uh, with its economic development. Uh, I think Salberg says in his book, he seems to be saying that the reason Finnish schools do well is because there is no stress. Yeah. Is that, do you think that's because he's sort of looking at the system as it is now and attributing past performance to that? Well, part, part of it definitely, I mean, one of my kind of, uh, one of the ways in which I refute this notion that the current system uh, with no, you know, tests and no uh, choice and no accountability specifically, I think that's the most important part that they say, oh, we trust our teachers and they're allowed to do whatever they want, essentially. And, you know, if you look at Finland's test course directory, it's pretty clear that um, this, this started well before uh, these policies even began. So these policies essentially from mid-1980s, but most of them were kind of finalized in the beginning of the 1990s. And what you see is that um, the improvements began already in 1960. They became under a highly centralized system and a highly kind of very, very different. With a lot of inspection, teachers were forced to fill in class diaries to send in for analysis in order to make sure that they determined the mandatory content. Uh, this does not mean that it was this system that produced the high scores. It's just kind of a simple way to refute the idea that the policies implemented in the 1990s or late 1980s were the determinative factor behind the rise. In fact, they correlate more with the decline. Mm -hmm. And it also kind of uh, is related to this change in methods because obviously Finnish, Finnish schools back in the 1980s, back in the 60s, 70s, they were highly traditional. Something has ch happened in the, land, the last couple of years. Uh, and I think that's also important to understand. So yes, I, I do think that he, uh, he doesn't even discuss the previous system and I think that's a, that's a fallacy. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I want to get back to... Uh, the, the methods and curriculum in a second, but uh, something that was interesting that you said is it sounded like for much of its history there was not, there wasn't a Finland as a distinct, a distinct country. Um, and, and maybe uh, I could be wrong in this, but maybe Finns didn't have even necessarily a, a, a national identity. Um, but is one of the reasons that Finland succeeds that for a very long time it seemed to have very low immigration, which suggests that maybe there's actually a whole lot of homogeneity in Finland that, that either leads to success or at least gave them the conditions in which you could have a centralized, well-focused uh, system where everybody was on the same page. So is that the case? Is, is a lack of immigration a, a, a major ex, part of the explanation for this? Or were Finns, are Finns not as homogeneous as, as at least I think they are? Well, they have been very homogeneous. I mean, homogenous. It's been, uh, I think, in in 2000, they had the first generation, when I mean, the percentage of first generation and second generation immigrants were two percent. In 1990, it was 0.9. Um, this was very. Now, in the in recent years, we've seen uh, an increase, but it's 
still quite small. I mean, 3.5, in two, two, PISA 2012, I think 3.5% of the kids had immigrant, immigrant background. Um, it cannot explain the decline. And also, if you look at the, uh, the test scores that you sit as a, you know, in, in ar the army test scores of military conscripts aged 18, 20, um, those scores started to fall around 97. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is, again, there's something else going on that goes beyond immigration. Although I do point out in the book that this lack of immigration might have uh, enabled this continuous special Finnish character to go on mm -hmm. for longer than it did in, in some of, of the neighboring countries. Uh, now, just a little bit. Um, so Finland uh, met most of its success that we that people talk about on this PISA exam. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about how PISA may be different from, there's the TIMS exam, mm. which is now trends in international math and science study. It's had various names, but always came out to TIMS somehow for most of its life, and, and, and other exams. Is it something about PISA that Finland does well on, or is it all such measures? Well, okay, so uh, Finland does as exceptionally well in PISA, not as well in TIMS. And TIMS, is a more curriculum-based uh, uh, test. It uh, measures more traditional kind of mathematics and natural sciences, rather than, P which P says more about reading. I mean, fundamentally, it's about reading. Um, and uh, so, so Finnish reader, I mean, Finnish, fin this is the irony, right? Because Finnish kids have always been good readers, already back in 1960, 1990. Um, so in general, no, I mean, Finland, they perform, they perform quite well in TIMS as well. In the recent one, what? They came in eighth place of mathematics and very high in natural sciences. The only time they participated in TIMS prior to 2011 was in 99. But we, and, and no, then they didn't perform that well, but it's also important to remember that they were a year younger. So they were, oh sorry, they were in a, a year group uh, younger, so they were 7th graders, so 13-year-olds rather than 14-year-olds in many other countries. But what we did see also in TIMS, is the fall, I mean, the fall is the same. So they fall in the equivalent of a school year of learning between 99 and 2011 because they, they tested those seventh graders also in 2011 to be able to measure the trends. So, I mean, F Finland, Finnish kids are extremely good readers, or have been. But what we see now is that is also declining. So the share, they've been very high. I mean, the share of, of kids who say that they read outside of school for, just for fun um, and that, that declined significantly between 2000 and 2009, a, a larger drop uh, than in any other uh, Nordic country. Uh, so again, that's a cultural factor that might impact on the PISA scores especially. Um, so, yeah, that's the... How big a role do you think culture then has mm. in Finland, but not just Finland, but, but in, in any country? What, what do you think is the, the size of the impact on culture on test scores, and if test scores are or are not a good measure of what you want out of schools, what's the impact of culture in all education outcomes? It's a difficult question to answer. Um, uh, That's why we're here, though. We yeah, ask sure. the tough no, I do think I do think that culture matters uh, a lot for both test scores, but also you know performance uh, later in life as well. Obviously, uh, that I do think so, but I can't. Quantify it. I mean, this is the thing. You know, I can pre present a different narrative, and I can refute um, the established kind of uh, uh, ideas of what created Finnish uh, success. But I can't prove this either. I mean, that's important to note. But it's just it is a bit of a puzzle, and uh, so I can't I can't state what you know the percentage or something that culture contributes uh, with. But 
um, I, I do think it's very, very important. Yeah, that's been my impression. I'm asking you to just confirm something I've always thought, which is that as more as I've looked at international exams and international outcomes, it seems culture is something that probably has a big impact, but a lot of people tend to not like to delve into that because it is so hard to quantify. There's not just a grand spectrum of culture that everyone agrees with. I mean, I can just mention a couple of examples. And you have, you know, the East Asians perform well wherever they are. I mean, it doesn't matter. In England, they perform well. In America, they perform the best. The best performing kids in Tupisa 2012 were the Asian Americans in American schools. And in, in same thing with Polish people now who moved to England. They've been increasing. There's a difference, you know, in Sweden, it's a different type of immigration. But in, in England, they've been actually uh, been uh, raising the average scores because Polish kids have the same type of hard working culture. They should, you know, work very hard, play the violin, play sports, do everything at once, and work, you know, study very hard. So I do think that's a kind of a uh, something that tells you something on how, of how important it is that these kids uh, uh, do well wherever they, they are, you know. <laughs> well, and so and then what role do you think curriculum has, and I guess within this context, uh, could, you know, if you go to a place where maybe the culture is not focused on academic achievement, could you put in a particular kind of curriculum intended to, say, raise PISA scores with, that's focused on PISA, and would it, would it actually have an effect, or oh. is it that the culture may be so powerful that changing a curriculum or standard or something like that is only going to have a muted effect because you basically can't make people do things they're not already inclined to do. I do think it has an effect. Uh, but again, it's difficult to say. I mean, we know that, for example, in Poland, which is performing very well in PISA, is performing very poorly in TIMS now. They've only, again, participated in, in, in uh, fourth grade 2011, but the scores are, I mean, well... Uh, below the international average and actually lower than countries such as Latvia, Estonia. So you have the same, you have, and the, incidentally, they, they changed their curriculum from, the from 2000. So it seems like, in general, Eastern European countries have been much better at TIMSS. Mm -hmm. So Russia performs extremely well in TIMSS, but quite poorly in PISA. And it happens to be the case that, yes, the curriculum in Russia and in the Eastern European countries in general, much more traditional. New Zealand was another interesting story because they performed very well. And part of that, what I understand, some people attributed to the fact that they had, you know, they changed the curriculum so they would actually, you know, teach more PISA knowledge. But now they don't perform that well, so I don't know. Maybe they, maybe culture came, came after them in, in the end as well. But no, Finland is, I mean, it happens to be the case that curriculum, Finnish curriculum is much more aligned with the PISA mm -hmm. than with Tim's. But I, I, I do say, I mean, they did perform, I highlighted the fact that they weren't that high performing in Tim's, but in the last round now, 2011, they were performing okay-ish. But it's clear that the, the trend is downwards, which is the more, the stuff that I think we should care about. And, and about. so then when you talk about the change in orientation maybe in Finnish schools away from being sort of traditional and teacher-centered uh, with the teacher as an authority figure, it sounds like it's getting more toward sort of, the, to use the kind of uh, hackneyed cliche, instead of being a sage on the stage, they're moving to the guide on the side where they sort of facilitate kids to learn what the kids feel like they're interested in as opposed to controlling what the classes do. Is that, you think, mainly a reflection of a changing culture in Finland? Or is it something that, you know, a government policy changed and the schools are moving that way and maybe that's, it's leading the culture. Yeah. 
I, I think it's both. And I, I mean, if you look at the reforms that were carried out in the respect, this respect, um, it was in 94, essentially, when they started to talk more about this idea, social constructivism, child-centered methods, um, because they wanted to move away from their traditional, um, their traditional uh, ways of teaching. It didn't really work, <laughs> because teachers just refused to. They, they hated this idea. I mean, they hate, as, just as they refused any school democracy for a very long time. They have said, no, 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 we're not going to have that. Uh, so um, they took some time before the education policy. And obviously, it takes time before it changes culture. But education policy obviously interacts with culture. So what you see now, and especially with the older teachers who start to retire, is that the new ways of teaching have definitely become more prevalent in Finland. It's difficult to quantify the effect, but obviously, Yes, culture has an impact because culture shifted you know, policy from the beginning. Uh, but incidentally, they gave teachers much more autonomy at the same time. So they could, you know, they could tell them to, uh, to leave them alone uh, at the same time. So um, it, they're interacting. I mean, that's, what, that's the most important point. That you, if, if you change education policy, eventually, culture, I think, will move in that direction at least. Do you think that there's an effect on the culture... Uh, in particular, maybe decreasing grit once a country becomes uh, economically affluent, where maybe the feeling that we have to succeed, and that means hard work, in order to, to maybe it's to improve economically, maybe it's to be competitive with other, other nations. Do you feel like once a country achieves a certain level, then you know, people sort of step off the gas, and they want uh, to, use, for lack of a better term, kind of a more touchy-feely, or maybe just a, a kinder, gentler classroom and, and instruction? No, I, I do think that's definitely, that's definitely the case. Uh, so it's, I, I argue that the, these uh, economic shifts both bring these cultural just in terms of, okay, yes, we, we want our kids to have a happier time. They shouldn't be as stressed. They shouldn't work as hard. So I do think there's something to it. And also, if you combine that with uh, the welfare state, because the, you know, Finnish, the Finnish welfare state is now as big as any other Scandinavian. But for a long time, it lagged. I mean, in 1980, I think benefit levels were uh, much considerably lower than in, in Sweden, for example. And in those situations, so one, you, know, you have the same, both at the same time. So we get richer, and uh, the, the welfare state is you know, expanded. I think eventually, yes, it will have an impact in, in the way you're, 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 you mentioned. And do you think it is, it's necessary or beneficial to have kind of a robust welfare state in order to get the, the kind of academic outcomes Finland had? <laughs> no, I, it's I, a loaded question. Yeah, it's a loaded question, that, so. yeah. No, I mean, it probably, I mean, in terms of its egalitarian effects, yeah, it probably has some egalitarian effects, but uh, it's, it's difficult. What we do know in Scandinavia and also in Finland is that the economic output started to improve well before the significant expansion of the welfare state. Now, we already had a smaller welfare state that appeared to be quite well-functioning, but it was, you know, Sweden and Scandinavia in general were doing very well already in 1960, and the great expansion of the welfare states were before. It's actually with the greater expansion of the welfare state that you start seeing economic decline. So I think, you know, maybe a little bit of it, but not too much. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, well, that ends uh, all the questions that I have already prepared for you, which now we get into the the dangerous sort of experimental part of this, where we go to the audience, but rather than just saying, ask a question, you can actually give a bit of a statement. But maybe I should set some guidelines. Once you pass like 20 minutes, I'm gonna cut you off. And it may even be shorter than that. But it'll probably be more than 20 seconds. 
Uh, and so we should have somebody with a microphone here. I th um, my one problem right now is I don't see our person with a microphone. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, except we want the people watching online to be able to also hear these questions. So while we, we get a microphone, and I know at least one is coming, um, I can either keep talking or we can ask... What's the reception to the book been like so far? Yeah, I mean, um, good. In England it was good, Sweden it was good, in Finland it was good. I gave a lecture there two months ago on it. Um, no, in Europe in general and in Germany it got widespread attention for specifically this idea of the traditional uh, uh, education culture, which I think is perhaps the, the biggest fallacy to say that Finland the reason why Finland has performed well and is performing well is because of a their very child-centered culture. Mm. It was kind of you know a bizarre world there for a while, uh, where they were basically advocating in that respect. Yeah. Okay. So now there's a microphone. The the one ground rule, other than you have sort of a nebulous amount of time to make a statement, is please write for the microphone to to reach you and then just tell us who you are. And so we have one here, and so we'll start right in the front since you are, I think, the closest to the microphone. Just it's on its way. Thank you, Herb Rose. Um, for full disclosure. At uh, one point, I did own some Nokia stock, but uh, <laughs> have since gotten rid of most of it. Uh, <laughs> um, I came here with the hope of learning or grasping some aha uh, perspective, uh, something that I could extrapolate to uh, my background in education and to the country's, uh, should I say, slippage in uh, performance in um, math and uh, math science and uh, reading capabilities, as uh, some of the tests have shown. Uh, and I'm having trouble finding any of that. You point out that uh, uh, Finland has a different culture and background and that some of these uh, history, some of these things have uh, been causative agents, perhaps, and they're doing well. Uh, you also talk about uh, PISA uh, being more of a reading test, um, and uh, uh, but then you, I think, if I understood you correctly, and please disabuse me if I didn't, uh, that Salzburg says that where there is um, uh, reason for success is that there is no stress. Uh, on the students. Did I uh, misinterpret that uh, statement earlier? No, I mean, that's, he says a lot of things, but that's one of them, I think. Okay, well, if you take a look at a lot of the Asian cultures, uh, there is a great deal of stress for success, and a lot of them seem to master uh, math, science, uh, reading. Uh, it crossed my mind that perhaps uh, ability to uh, do well at reading uh, may have some uh, connection to the nature of the particular language that you are learning. And uh, uh, so uh, I, Asian uh, languages, I think, uh, depend largely, or to some extent, I should say, on uh, the nature of their alphabet and finishes different from uh, most Scandinavian and other languages. So I don't know whether that has any bearing. But I still can't extrapolate too much from um, what your findings have been 
and how uh, the direction in education in the United States uh, should proceed. So maybe you can enlighten me if I've missed something here. Okay. Um, yes, you're absolutely right in terms of the, the, uh, the idea that Asian kids, of course, do well because they perform well. But one of the points about the book is also to show that Finland is perhaps not that different from East Asia as you think, and especially not when you saw the rise. Obviously, it takes time before certain education policies uh, take an effect. Um, and uh, in terms of what should be understood from the American perspective, well, absolutely. I think, I think the most important point is that um, Finland has been used as a, as a kind of an argument against one of some of the major trends in education reform in the Anglo-Saxon world and also in my country, Sweden, school choice, uh, accountability, and so forth. My point is you can't, it's, it's very difficult to use it as one of those examples. But also, some of these pedagogical methods that I highlight, and many of them actually emerged here and in England. And then they traveled, because nobody here wanted them, apparently, or a little bit less, at least. But you know, some of these, so that's definitely an important lesson that in terms of the direction that this country is moving, and I'm not sure about this, and it would be interesting to hear somebody else's opinion, but this, the common core, if it, it actually includes some of these uh, child-centered uh, ways of teaching, although uh, quite difficult. Those are the things that moving kind of education policy all over the place now. And it becomes the kind of established orthodoxy that these methods are the ones uh, that led Finland to perform well, that are great for educational success. And look, I'm not saying that they are bad for everything. I'm just saying if you want the higher PISA scores and if you want better cognitive performance, they don't seem to be the, the kind of key to that. And quite frankly, I present evidence in the book that shows that they can be very, they can be detrimental. So, so that's the kind of, there are a couple of things there. A couple of uh, uh, issues in terms of understanding what Finland can't disprove, but also in terms of what the lessons are for America in terms of these methods. Okay, we're gonna go over, and now we have two microphones. So in the, the man behind the other man with the hands up, only because I think he was first, then we'll definitely get to you. Thanks. Yeah. Um, my name's Dave Price, a retired journalist and educator. I'm gonna talk about the education part real briefly and that'll f uh, phase into my questions. Uh, background, 20 years teaching uh, English in urban New Jersey, urban school. Five years working with Johns Hopkins. Uh, very fortunate to study a number of other things. And uh, after I retired, uh, working as an educational consultant in DC and other places. Uh, had a chance to really look at some interesting ones. But one of the schools that we knew best was in Eskilstuna in Sweden. We spent 10 years there studying it. Uh, but then I got a chance to compare that, American schools, with a couple other very interesting places, one being China and the other being Cuba. So it's quite a cross-section, mm. uh, which leads me to this question. America seems to have pretty much a schizophrenic idea about education. On one hand, we want to lead the world in test scores and that kind of thing, but on Friday night, heaven help us if our football team doesn't win. And it really doesn't produce consistency. To support Neil, not that he needs any support, he's smart enough on his own, the idea, I think he raised two points that are very important, uh, homogeneity in terms of which America is, is so spread out and diverse. Uh, you know, is kind of a, a question. So my questions to you would be this. Uh, how much does just spatial geography have to do, do you think, which is like culture, but just so many different, that's one. Uh, two, what I found in all the other schools different than America was this emphasis during academic time on academics, and all the other things came later. Just real quickly, China, 
uh, normal day, uh, had to get to own school the own way, started at seven, got done at three-ish, stopped, then went to uh, what they called extra school, that would be uh, computers, all the other things that we integrate into our, okay, to go home, get something for dinner, if you're older, come back and take two to three hours of uh, preparation for the national test, and then back home to do your homework, and then start the next day over. Much different, we know, than American schools. So my question is again, geography, how much, you know, can we really compare countries to countries? Two, uh, the idea of emphasis of what Americans place on school and whatnot. And third is something you raised earlier. Do you really think, as someone who studies education, are we really looking at somewhat at the wrong things? Uh, you know, success and happiness, and then demonstrating what you know on a test, very different. So those three questions, if you would. Thank you. Yeah. So spatial geography. Yeah, no, I do think. And we can just look at, you know, Massachusetts scores in TIMS. Very high achieving. I mean, my colleague and I are coming out with another kind of demography-adjusted PISA league table, and you can see vast differences. I mean, uh, America doesn't perform that poorly. I mean, it scores higher than the EU average. You will see, yes, of course, demography matters. Uh, and geography matters, because Finland, Sweden, all of these countries, quite cold climates, right? The only thing you had to do was work hard. <laughs> and Aristotle also said it brought higher trust, which also might have some, some issues with it. But so I, I do think that spatial geography, no, I mean, one of the points about the book is to highlight the futility of looking at countries' education system and relating them to their performance, this best practice idea. That's one part of it. It's it's impossible, because you have no idea. You basically cherry pick a characteristic that you like, and then you say, ah, this is the, this is the one. So uh, I'm trying not to do that by actually looking at the background research. Again, it's not direct evidence, because there's very little direct evidence of it. But I'm trying to do that by looking at the overall research picture and see what pieces of the puzzle get support from the overall research. So spatial geography matters. I, I completely agree, and I do think that it also had an impact on the cultural uh, trajectory. And we should also know that, I mean, Im immigrant students in, in Finland, the, the differences are the wide, some of the widest in the world now. So they're having big issues now when, when especially Helsinki is becoming more heterogeneous, and they don't really know what they're going to do about that. And especially in the sense of when, they, when they're now moving towards these child-centered methods, which tend to be worse for the, those specific kids. So spatial geography. And the second question was? Uh, the idea of the emphasis in the school. America incorporates everything. Sports and the other go out. So is that, you find one that are more third, which is the hard tests, what we really need to be looking at. Yeah. Okay, yeah, no, I mean, in general, yes, I do. First of all, I think the tests are important, but they're certainly not everything. And some of these uh, things that I point out in the book is that these new methods tend to be good for some other uh, stuff, such as social capital and also self-confidence. And, you know, American kids have a lot of self-confidence, and Swedish kids as well. They think they're very good, but then when they actually sit the test, they don't, they're not very good. Korean kids, on the other hand, think they're really bad, and then they score very high. Um, so it seems th there might be a trade-off here, because also in Sweden we see higher happiness, happiness in school rising, but some of those schools, in Finland, some of the worst people happiness in the world, Poland, same thing, All, many of the high achievers are very poor, poorly performing in that aspect. I think there is some form of a trade-off. All I'm trying to, to do is to point it out and say, don't, don't, you know, don't try and tell me that you can do 
both in the same way, that you can achieve the maximum you know, PISA scores and get the happiest pupils at the same time. I don't buy it. Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, well, since uh, I passed by you last time, only because it was fair, uh, this man next. But I like it to be fair, so you're next. Okay, I'm, I'm Roy Gamzee, uh, re retired, uh, most recently executive vice president of Imagine Schools, which uh, runs a network of uh, uh, about 65 pu public charter schools uh, around the country with uh, 35,000 students. Um, I, I feel at a disadvantage because you didn't make us read the book before we came in, and I didn't learn enough. I wish you had kind of more of a lecture to teach us uh, the book. Uh, so what, what, I, what I've gleaned here is, is that the, uh, the performance uh, in Finnish schools predated the reforms, mm. um, and yet we think that the Finnish performance is good because of tests, the PISA tests that started in 2000. So how, how, do, how do we know that it was good before? Uh, and then when we started having good PISA scores, uh, which was the documentation I'm hearing, that's not because of the reforms that were instituted, but rather it's because of the carryover of the more rigid traditional approach to education. Mm. And, uh, and uh, when the reforms came in, the teachers largely ignored them. Uh, so the old way is carried over, and now the older teachers are dropping out. Uh, those brought in with the new reform approaches are taking over more, and the performance is dropping. But I, I, I'd like some perspective on how it's dropping. I mean, did they drop from number one to number five, or they're now below the United States in performance? Mm. Uh, you know, what, what, is, what, is, what does that mean? Uh, and it makes more sense to me if it's reacting to just the scores, and yet some of the positive appraisals of the Finnish <coughs> approach have come from you know, on-site on uh, studies over time from at least, I know, you know American education experts. Uh, and, and so that, that's a little confusing because these folks seem to have had the, uh, uh, been fooled by the, the, the propaganda about the reforms as opposed to what they might see in the classroom. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm hearing positive reviews from people who are doing classroom observations over an extended period of time that seem to think that t teachers are actually doing what they're, supposed to, what they're now supposed to be doing as opposed to what they traditionally do. Mm. Okay. Um, on the last point, so yes, you're right. I mean, how do we know, first of all, that Finland performed well prior to the PISA scores? Well, there was another test, and Tim's, I mean, Tim's and various, uh, you know, variations of it have been in, have been running since the 1960s. It's just that they were not as sexy as PISA when the OECD came out. So the media uh, have not necessarily uh, paid as much attention to them, and that's that's the kind of long story short. In 1991, Finland was the what, leading in reading comprehension, the improvements in natural science among 10-year-olds between 1970 and 1983, largest in the world, and also tying first place already then. Uh, and again, this is well before, so we do know this. And again, all of that, all of, of, of the references to those studies and to those escorts are in the book, so they're all there. So that's how we know it. And the other issue was more of a statement regarding that people are actually doing more the spillover from the traditional, and that, but if you look at the, uh, the the classroom level, they are doing what they should be doing. Look, Finland is still quite traditional. When I was there, I saw lect I mean, it was a university lecture, 
no interaction between kids, just with the teacher. Blah, 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 question, back to the teacher. Blah, 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 question, back to the teacher. You know, that's what it was. But then I also saw something that, you know, reminded me of home. You know, kids just studying mathematics by themselves in the, in the hallway, uh, 12-year-olds, uh, much more interaction. So, and, you know, they are, the head teachers that you mean, they, they, some of them are very anxious to point out that we have changed. We're not that traditional anymore. Some, somewhere you will see Korea, in some classrooms you'll see Korea, in some classrooms you'll see Sweden. Uh, and it, they, they are pushing for this. So um, I'm just saying in comparison to the situation in, say, 96, when there was a British research team there, uh, visited 50 schools to evaluate this new reform in 1994, um, who said that basically we, we could have swapped teachers from school to school, from lesson to lesson. The kids wouldn't have noticed the difference. Geography, art, mathematics, all delivered in the same way. Rows and rows of children. They, saw. I mean, they conjured up this image of a Bismarckian factory almost, you know, <laughs> education factory. So, so I'm just saying, if, and there is also some evidence that I, I dug up from the World Health Organization survey when they ask pupils about what the teachers, uh, you know, how the teachers tell them to act in the classroom. In 94, I mean, since 90, between 94 and 2010, the share of pupils who say, the teachers encourage me to speak and speak my mind have been increasing radically. So there's definitely a change, but of course, uh, some of these methods, a little bit of it, might not be too harmful either. But it's eventually when you reach the threshold and you start declining. So in terms of how big this fall is, it's the largest fall between 2006 and 2012 uh, among all Nordic countries. Um, it's on average 27, it's almost uh, three-fourths of a school year worth of learning. Uh, they're still performing better than America, but not by much in mathematics. And also in TIMS, they're basically on par with math in mathematics now, because um, America has also performed better in TIMS. So does England. Pizza. No, in PISA, they're still better. But in, in mathematics, what I can remember, I can't remember America's uh, actual position. We're middling and uh, middling, yeah. So it's oh, it's slightly above now. I mean, it's still it's still fairly good. It's still good in natural science and reading comprehension. But I want to highlight that we shouldn't focus too much on the the comparisons between countries because other countries might get better, other might, countries might get worse. What we should focus on uh, are the absolute scores, and they've been declining in all three subjects between 2006 and 2012, and we'll see. But you know, it, this is not only in PISA. Again, in TIMS, in the national uh, sample-based evaluations, in the army test scores, which are taken when they're, eight, eight, you know, males are 18 to 20-year-olds, um, these have been declining uh, at the same time. So there seems to be something going on in Finland that is acting as a pressure, a downward pressure on, on, on attainment or achievement. Okay, let's see. I have over here, right in the middle, and then we'll get you next. Thank you. All right, good afternoon. Uh, thank you. Uh, it's been a great presentation. I enjoyed reading the book beforehand. I did, was able to get a copy beforehand off online there. Um, you did your homework. <laughs> I, uh, lot, lot of free time there for that. Um, but one of the things I would like to go back to, and some of the things that Neil has brought up before, and I think Neil and I are both uh, uh, agree that uh, the, the culture hmm. is a strong influence on school performance, on education performance. And I like the way in the book that you really put the education 
the educational system and the educational policy in the context of the culture. So that was really, really nice. I enjoyed that. But there's one thing that we we see here in the United States uh, that was that you had contrary in the uh, in your book here. Uh, we see that there is a a high influence of the socioeconomic status on student performance. Mm. And yet you identified in your book that the Swedish uh, Finnish students, uh, students in Finland of Swedish descent, who are the elites, as I took it in the book there, are the elites, the students of those schools performed uh, not as good as the students of the schools, the true Finnish schools. Any idea why that may have happened? I mean, again, with the Finland, they're called yeah, the Finland Swedes. Uh, you mentioned, yeah, no, they they were the historical elite, and they they live longer, they're healthier, they're high, slightly more educated, and so on and so forth. Um, and no, there's still at the individual level, there's obviously still a correlation between socioeconomic background and performance. But again, they've become more, I think, Scandinavian in their culture. And also, if you look at, and it's something that I didn't mention here, but if you look at the uh, uh, economic trajectory in the 1990s, Finland was struck by an economic crisis that was worse than the Great Depression in that country. Uh, again, and we also see that actually this that share of people emphasizing this kind of determination, perseverance is important for children to learn, R increased radically over the 2000s, but only in Finland. Um, so I, I think, I mean, the cultural aspect of it there is that, no, the, the, there's definitely the, the, the CISU aspect of it with, with those uh, things. But sorry, the other, the other point was? No, that was it. Okay. No, there is, yeah, yeah, there, there is a, at the individual level, but the point is that the Finland Swedes were also less hit by this crisis. So I argue that perhaps once you reach a certain level, the cultural aspect of it kicks in uh, at, the, at the macro level. Of course, it's the same thing. I mean, if you look at, uh, if you look at the Finland Swedes up in Ostrobotnia, they are slightly less educated, but they tend to be happier. They have the most <laughs> industrious kind of... Uh, attitudes to business. So again, we're talking about two different things here, but they tend to perform worse in, 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 in uh, PISA. Okay, right up front here. Yeah, thank you very much. My name is Laura Saarikoski. I'm a US correspondent for the leading Finnish newspaper, the Helsingin Sanomat. I find your uh, book very interesting. I haven't read it yet, but I've uh, attended school in both New Zealand and the United States. And what I've noticed here is that uh, the student, students generally don't expect to do their homework a lot. So I tend to agree without reading your book with some of the conclusions that you draw. However, I would have three questions. You seem to point out that this sort of a grit and authoritarian um, relations in school are part of the success. How do you then explain that, for example, France, which has a very authoritarian system, doesn't perform as well? So is there some other aspects in a Finnish system than authoritarianism and grit that explains the success? Because otherwise you would think that France would be far ahead, for example. Second of all, um, you are a market... Uh, um, yeah, a p person who works in a school market, so would you have some kind of a market-based solution mm. for uh, getting uh, finished PISA results better? What would be your suggestion for the future? And third of all, are you aware that you sound a little bit like a Swedish colonialist when you say that uh, the Swedish uh, people brought the culture to Finland and didn't really have any, that it didn't really have anything before that? And could you please elaborate a little uh, bit sure, on that sure. point? Okay. 
Uh, I'll take the last one first, that's more controversial. Well, no, I'm just saying it's a national Finnish-speaking culture, the high culture didn't really exist. Between 1809 and 1855, I think it was like 400 books or 500 books in total published in the Finnish language. Most of these were uh, religious. So uh, it's an f- established fact that, that the, the Finlands or the, the fin- Swedish speakers, many of whom were born in Sweden, uh, were instrumental for, for establishing a Finnish national identity. The most important, perhaps, was Johan Snellman, who did believe in Hegel's idea that, you know, that the nation-state was the uh, end of history, the end goal of history, and that's why they had to give up uh, Swedishness. Um, and regards to uh, France, you're absolutely right. But again, I'm not trying to say that these are, uh, uh, you know, uh, the only thing that matters. You have also in France a much more heterogeneous society, for example. And I did some of the calculations when you uh, uh, take, you know, uh, remove the samples, with the immigrant samples of this first and second generation. generation uh, samples, they tend to perform better, and also the fall in France uh, is, I think, about 30% uh, exp- uh, is explained. So uh, my, my point is just that um, these methods appear to be working uh, in general, but of course they can't do miracles in any situation. So there are many other reasons why why France performs well, as there are other reasons for why Finland performs well, which is one of those, there has to be a cultural acceptance of them as well. The problem is that I see it as if you change methods, you also start to change culture. And again, we come to that interaction between the cultural uh, acceptance of these hierarchical teachers um, and the, not authoritarian, I wouldn't call them authoritarian, but authoritative teachers. Um, and it's very difficult to know what causes what. That, that's true. But I, I, do, I do think that, and in the conclusion, I discussed this a little bit more. Uh, in terms of the internalization of how the teachers uh, actually act. I think the kids will, will pick up on that. And I mean, if you look at the charter school evidence in America, I mean, it is kind of mixed, but if you, if you look at the schools that actually perform well, they're the no-excuse paradigm schools. They are the ones who are raising the, the kids' performance radically. Um, and I think there's something to it that it's not only the culture, but I think the education culture uh, is something... Well, at least part of the answer there. You have the same thing in England. The schools in the most disadvantaged areas tend to be very traditional drill and uh, tends to work for them. They create this kind of a different attitude to the educational establishment. Oh, yes, you said market-based solution to Finland. Well, I'm just saying, look, the evidence on this, and I discussed this in the book as well, in terms of if you want a higher PISA scores, yes, no, I mean, more uh, private school enrollment tends to be Good, but again, it's not a panacea. This is important to understand. Um, and uh, I think when culture changes like this, that's going on in Finland and is going on in Sweden. And I'm involved in that debate as well to try and make Swedish politicians listen. To me. Very difficult. Um, uh, no, but basically, this idea of trusting professionals. This is great. I mean, that worked in the ni- in 1950, 1960. We just that was fine. Uh, but now, when you have parents and kids screaming at teachers uh, and trying to push them into giving high grades, because in Finland, they give the grades that actually matter. So there are no SATs, so they give the grades. Same thing in Sweden. And the, univer- and the high schools are forced to accept those grades. So in that situation, you start more and more pressure against teachers. And that's the people I spoke with, the teachers I spoke with in Finland, said that's definite, definitely was the case. And I think if you want to change the system, you need to make sure that the incentives are there 
to uh, basically uh, make everybody move in the same direction. So maybe you do need now a central exam in Finland, God forbid, or something at least. No, but this is a big issue in Finland. There's a couple of people pushing for it, but, but they don't want that because that's, that's too much with a standardized test. And, of course, there's a lot of testing in Finland. Don't get me wrong. There's tests every week. They test and they have grades from, you know, it's not like in Sweden. We didn't, you know, we, up until when I was in school, I didn't get grades until I was in the eighth grade. I was 14 years old. Uh, in Finland, that's not the case. So, it, again, it's just about this, you need to change the system. And part of that would probably be some market-based reforms, but also changing the ways in, uh, the incentives in, in other ways as well, such as with perhaps one some form of exams. Um, I mean, I personally believe that norm, not norm, cohort referencing is a, is a good way to instill higher com competition between pupils. What, what does that mean? No, cohort reference is just, I mean, normally, I mean, this is, this is again, very difficult to, to discuss because it has been abolished for a reason, for a cultural reason, because we believe that we should, everybody should be able to pass, right? for good reasons, uh, um, but it's also the case that when you do that, it's very difficult to have a cri criterion reference system, so you have certain goals for each grade. It's very difficult, eventually you will see inflation in those grades, and that's what happens pretty much all over the world apart from IB, International Baccalaureate, there seems to be some metric uh, there to, to stop that from happening. But in a, in a cohort reference system, of course, you give 7% A's, blah, 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 and down. I argue that you, know, you could make a compromise and say there's no failing grade. That's what we had in Sweden up, to, up until 95. We had one to five, but there was no official failing grade, which meant that you didn't, you didn't mark students as failing, and therefore they could still go on and do certain things in life, even though they got a two, because it didn't mean anything. Uh, so obviously you need to make some changes. But with that kind of system, when you have a, a, a norm, a cohort referencing in terms of a, the, the more of a bell curve deciding the number of students and the share of students achieving each grade, you definitely have more competition. There's some evidence that that tends to improve, especially the high achievers, because one of the problems in, in a system where you only have, can attain A, what do you do when you're done? What do you do when you already have an A or an A star? In England, we introduce an A star, and I assume there will be two stars and three stars, I presume because they've also been increasing over time. So the point about having the more you know, a cohort reference system is actually to instill more competition among the high achievers and driving everybody up. Like in Singapore, they have that. Singapore and Hong Kong, I think, as well. I think one solution may be, uh, within the alphabet, come up with a letter before A. <laughs> well, that's for someone else to do. Um, and for, for Americans who may not follow all the cohort reference or norm reference. That is a debate here in the US, so part of the idea of Common Core is you have these norms of what we expect everybody to know by the time they are done with high school, as opposed to, uh, call it cohort reference, but basically uh, we have sort of a national reference test where you give an exam to a, a representative group of kids and then you say where are kids falling in math or reading versus that national average, so, because we don't always know all the same terminology, well, and not everybody knows testing terminology, which is good for them, because it's not the most exciting thing. I, I think also it's, uh, because many people call it norm referencing, what I'm calling code reference, but norm reference actually when you establish a specific level of, of achievement. Yes, yeah, that's right, my, my mistake, so criterion reference, yes, sorry, that's the is one. the common core yeah, yes. with what, what you go with. Norm yeah. reference is the average, sorry, yeah. so even I get confused. Yeah, no, it is, it is very confusing, but yeah, anyway. Yeah, but just for our yeah. American audience who doesn't spend a whole lot of time with <laughs> test nomenclature. Okay, and so I think that I've got, we'll go here and then over there. 
I'm trying to go in the order I saw the hands up, but if I wasn't fair, sorry about that. Good afternoon. My name's Todd Wiggins. I, uh, before my question, I will admit that I was around when uh, Archie Bunker, the character Archie Bunker, sang the, uh, Those Were the Days, and he talked about didn't need no welfare state. Everybody pulled his weight. Remember that? I don't know if you remember that, Mr. I, I do remember that. And I didn't I think we'd have singing in this, but my experiment's really working out well because it's becoming sort of a variety show. But go ahead. Uh, my question has to do with um, the anomalies that come up. We know that in general, people who do well in academics and go into secondary and postgraduate degrees tend to do better in life in terms of perceivable success. But then there are the occasional anomalies, uh, such as I believe Steve Jobs, who supposedly, or yeah. maybe it was Bill Gates that uh, did not actually technically finish the, um, their college. I think degree. actually neither one did. No, I, I don't think. think I, no, no, I don't think anybody. No. And I believe here, even locally, Dan Snyder, who owns uh, the Redskins, uh, actually left U University of Maryland, but did did well for himself. Sure. Uh, even though the Redskins aren't what they should be, but that's yep. another story. Big win <laughs> yesterday, though, so he didn't need to go to college. <laughs> <laughs> so, in your book, did you uh, address the anomalies of um, people that went on to be successful in either tech or became great innovators that affected? Mm the culture and maybe made significant contributions? Um, no, I don't discuss that. And quite frankly, I, I do know of these uh, examples that we have. But uh, I have a colleague of mine, Tino Sanandaji, has uh, done a lot of work on entrepreneurship and what he calls the, the super entrepreneurs, the ones who create a lot of jobs. Um, uh, they tend to be highly overrepresented as, uh, among PhDs. Um, they are done in the population average. So I think you could highlight that some, of, of course, some will do well without any schooling. And that's true. But on average, that still, that doesn't hold, at least when you're talking about these innovators who change and really uh, are crucial for uh, the innovative uh, aspect of society. So uh, I haven't really discussed that there, because in this case, I'm discussing why Finland is doing well in the metric that we think about when we think about Finland. But I do discuss a little bit at the end about that this might not be everything. But we have to start a discussion. That's the discussion we should have in that case and discuss other uh, potential um, you know, uh, well, metrics and how we can measure performance, non-cognitive achievement, etc. Uh, and also, I mean, look, economists, we're more interested in the fundamental issue with wages, labor market outcomes, and that's where the research is moving now. And some of, the, some of the education reforms that do not have an impact on test scores show up in future wages. And that's something, so, so you know, the depressive picture is always that all of these reforms, when you analyze them in, 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 with rigor, you don't tend to find any effects or very small effects. That's the conclusion everywhere. But now when you see the kind of analyze the long-term effects, all of them tend to have long-term effects. So uh, quite significant long-term effects on pupil wages. So uh, I, I don't discuss it, but, and I think it's important, but I also want to highlight that the examples are often used in kind of a misleading way um, because the super entrepreneurs are certainly uh, are much more highly educated than the population average. Maybe that explains why the Redskins have been so bad <laughs> and only recently. Well, one game of that <laughs> better. Okay, so there was somebody, oh, right here in the middle, and then we're gonna go to a Twitter question, is that right? Okay, so right in the middle, and then to a Twitter question. Can, oh, there we go. I knew there was somebody. 
Hi, my name is Alexandra Hudson. I'm from the Wisconsin Institute of Law and Liberty, and I do education policy work there. Uh, we're based in Milwaukee. It's nice to see you on the side of the pond, Gabriel, uh, back from class at the LSC. Thank you for making uh, Professor Hills proud of us. Um, but my question has to do with test scores and their relevance to uh, lifelong success, which is similar to this previous question. I recently saw this documentary, you may have, people here may have seen it, it's called Most Likely to Succeed, which um, looks at different um, metrics, different ways of measuring success that are less you know, quantitative and more, more qualitative. Um, skills like collaboration, like you know, outside the box thinking and problem solving. Um, and, and Tyler Cohen of uh, George Mason University talks about, you know, in this post-industrial society, things are, are done more and more through technology and less and less through human, you know, human skill set. And um, he, he talks about, you know, people, of the, people are going to be less and less uh, relevant to, you know, zero, people of zero marginal productivity will be, you know, is like the future. And so my question is to do with um, the extent to which, you know, test scores are relevant to, to um, you know, economic prosperity um, in terms of the, uh, is it measuring the right kind of skills that are necessary to see people employed in 10 years, 15 years from now? Hmm. Well, um, it's, it, that's a debate and it's not settled, but I do think they are important, partly because of research by, for example, Hera Kanishek and Luger Westman have been doing a lot of uh, research on these test scores and relating it to future levels of economic performance. Uh, there are still some issues with it. It's not the best research, but there's definitely a very striking um, relationship between how, you, how these kids perform and how, how the country's doing in the future, uh, trying to take into account other things. But again, it's still, it's still not great. But I do think that just doing the... Okay, so we shouldn't focus only on that, but we shouldn't just you know, throw them overboard either. So yeah, sure, develop metrics and try and relate it to future outcomes and see what matters. And I think there's, there, this is being developed right now, but it's still is in its infancy. But in terms of educational uh, you know, reforms and the effects, I think yeah, yeah, non-cognitive skills will be important. I think we have to come up with ways how to measure that better, uh, irrespectively of what type of cognitive skills we want to measure. So uh, yes and no, it's important. I mean, it's important, but it's not everything. You know, it's, not, it, it, this is a, it's such a difficult issue, and I, I, I can certainly answer that. Um, in this forum, unfortunately. Okay, so up to, to Rachel with our Twitter question. I'll lose it, sorry. <laughs> so we've had some really uh, complex questions today, so I got a nice brief one from Twitter that says, um, how does Finland's teacher recruitment, training, mentorship strategies affect student achievement? Yeah, okay. So this is one, the teacher education part is one of the reasons that standard explanations behind Finnish success. Fin, for those of you who do not know about it, it's basically very competitive. 10% on average uh, get accepted to uh, teacher education. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, that's essentially it. And they all graduate with master's degrees uh, the primary school teachers as well. Now, if you look again, I discussed this in the book, and if you look uh, these are the features highlighted, right? If you look in the book, you'll see that the test scores, I mean, started booming way before any of these teachers could have been uh, put on the job market because the reforms occurred in mid-1970 when the teacher education was transferred from seminars, very kind of practical uh, teacher seminars, um, 
two universities, and then in 79, all teachers were forced to have master's degrees. But again, it's, it's actually the, the teachers who were, who were educated at the seminars, the, the fall is related to them retiring. Uh, so it takes time before any of these reforms have any impact. So I say, look, it might still have be, be important, but the most important point about teacher status and why teachers are highly intelligent in Finland, because they appear to be. There's a paper showing, analyzing different PIAC scores, and again, PIAC is a kind of a PISA similar metric of, for adults. Um, and Finnish teachers perform the best in the world in those scores. But again, I, this is obviously have to do with something with the history of why teachers were so important. So again, I relate that to the historical question, not the, not the current teacher education. Uh, and if you look at the Finland Swedes, again, different culture, similar edu same education system, you have much lower competition there. 40% get accepted, 59% uh, in kindergarten education in Helsinki last year versus 16% among, among the Finnish speakers. So different cultures, different teacher status. And I argue that the Finnish, the Swedish-speaking cultures and the minority had, a very, had a different demands and different needs for these immensely uh, authoritative teachers. So there might, it, you know, the current teacher selection policies and the current teacher education system might have contributed on the margin or enabled Finland to maintain teacher status in kind of the face of, of great societal changes, but it was not the fundamental uh, uh, cause behind Finland's performance. Okay, are there any other? Yes, we have a question right here, and then over here, and then I think we'll probably be out of time, but we'll see how long the questions are, and statement, because I said you can make a statement, just as a reminder, mm -hmm. uh, if we have time for any after that. Just the, just the question. How, uh, can you tell us something about how and how effectively the Finnish educational system deals with the needs of what might be called special education students, students with either with disabilities or with learning differences? Yeah, I mean, special education is one of those features that are highlighted. And they, I mean, special education in Finland is much broader. It's basically you take out some students and you give them more education if they're falling behind. So it's quite early intervention trying to make sure that they catch up. That, is, that, that was basically in, in implemented as part of the comprehensive school reform in the 1970s. Uh, with, I've saw some numbers and the pupils basically getting uh, this type of special education boomed in the 1970s. Now, the comprehensive school reform has been evaluated. It's not the only thing, but it has been evaluated, and it barely had any difference on these male army test scores at the end of upper secondary school. But no, there's a lot of this in Finland today. So what they say is that they don't ability group in Finland, they say, but that's, that's not true. They ability group, or that, that's a lot of ability grouping. The differences, so you know, one of the things in PISA is that you have big, dif small differences between schools. Well, if you look at TIMS, when you can dig down to the class level, there's a couple of researchers showed that, oh, it's huge, the differences between classes. And this is because there are elite classes already in comprehensive education. But they also call this, when they lift out and put them in separate groups, they call it special education and differentiation. But in fact, it's a lot of ability grouping. So special education is in inter intertwined with, with uh, with special with uh, ability grouping, uh, and you know, it is it is an important feature. But again, I have no evidence on how uh, effect, effective it has been. I can just uh, highlight the fact that the overall the fact that with the comprehensive school reform, 
um, uh, these things or special education increased and there was no impact of the, of the uh, or very small impact of the comprehensive school reform. It's not an entirely satisfactory answer, but, uh, you know, none, none of it is, unfortunately. Yeah, it's a topic that is almost impossible. This is, I think, one of the uh, dangers of test scores is people look at the test scores, well, this is a number, so it must be yeah. definitive, and it's very hard to put any kind of definitive measure on what we get out of education. Um, and so we have, uh-oh, two people. Oh, okay. He's deferred to her, so go there. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, um, he's talked about special education, but I've read an article in the last week or two that um, has to do with the um, gifted students in Finland yeah. and how the number of students um, scoring five or six on the PISA, for example, has really declined over time. And at the same time that they claim there's no um, ability grouping in Finland, there's apparently sort of underground ability grouping and oh, supplementation yeah. and stuff. And could you speak to what Finland is doing right and wrong with respect to the kids who are at that upper end of the spectrum? Well, again, the focus in Finland ever since the comprehensive school reform has been to focus on the low achievers and lift them up. And you're absolutely right, Finland does not have a high percentage of high achievers, not in comparison to the East Asian countries. So it's a much kind of uh, smaller range of the distribution of scores in Finland. You see the same thing in, yeah, 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 and the same thing in Estonia, which is a similar education system, Poland as well. So they do well primarily because they have, or have done well primarily because they've had few uh, low performers. Uh, so, uh, yeah, no, this is a debate in Finland also that they, they ignore a lot of the important skills that you need for higher, for example, mathematics, that you need uh, to go on and do engineering and economics. And the mathematics professors have written, they were very angry about the PISA scores because they, they were saying, this is not what we see. We just see that standards decline and decline and decline over the course of the same, you know, when the PISA scores are telling us that they're performing well. And part of it, this is that the mathematics in PISA is not that difficult. So I, I don't think PISA is a very good metric for measuring very, very high-performing uh, kids either. Uh, but no, you're, you're right about that. TIMS is probably better if you're, because it's more difficult in general. Uh, it's a more traditional way of measuring. You know, PISA is also, this, this has a little bit to do with this idea of the 21st century skills. This idea that we don't need these traditional uh, knowledge in a, in a ch rapidly changing world. Uh, so, so you have much more emphasis on understanding, and that's why the reading, I mean, the questions are very long, whereas in, in, in Tim's, you see, solve the equation, which is also why immigration actually has a less, less of an impact in Tim's, because reading, obviously, is much more difficult for uh, children of immigrant background to comprehend than understanding an, a formula that they might have been subjected to in their home countries. Are there any other questions? Well, I've got, we've got about a minute left, so we'll go right here. Sorry, I think this will have to be the last one. Thank you. One minute. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for the talk. Uh, my name is Mika Tomi, and I'm a result of 12 years of Finnish public education, so uh, it was great to hear this talk. Uh, and now I'm here in, in the U.S. in Georgetown enjoying the American education, mm. so that is very good as well. Um, so my question really is, um, how do you see the concept in Finland that you never have dead ends in education? And does that make a difference? Um, you, you might go off from different uh, levels of education. You might go to vocational school after, instead of high school, but you can still make your way up to the university. And there's never a situation where you can study, like you don't study a subject 
and you're excluded of, let's say, studying medicine because you didn't take a certain course. And I guess this relates to the big debate we have on special education. Also, like in Germany, it's very early on that the kids are put in different groups where you can't really switch over anymore when that's not the case. Do you see, see there's a difference in this? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, there's no short answer. I think, so, you know, Sweden, the Finnish education system is surprisingly similar to Sweden because they, Sweden's because they've always followed. And we have the same thing. I mean, the idea that you can always progress, actually that has been evaluated in Sweden and may increase the likelihood of dropping out among the kids who didn't want to do uh, more academic, because you have to force them to do a bit more of academic uh, uh, teaching or, uh, or learning, uh, the, the vocational students in order to, and that seemed to be not functioning in Sweden. That hasn't been evaluated in Finland, so I can't say anything about that, but it seems to, I think it's on a bit of a shaky ground. What I do think um, Finland has that other uh, Scandinav well, Scandinavian countries don't have is an end, basically, exit exam with this very old school cohort reference test, which they do have at the end of upper secondary school, which increases you know, incentives to work hard, and it affects comprehensive school as well, because the teachers uh, need, to, uh, need to teach them up to the standard that's demanded at upper secondary school. And the same thing, you have competition for places, huge school choice in, uh, in upper secondary school in Finland. You can apply to any high school you want, right? And you can move, and there's no, and the only thing that matters for whether you get in, your grades. So it's performance-based school choice, giving strong incentives for kids to work hard. And there's evidence from that, both from England, but also from Sweden, uh, showing that these, this tracking, even though tracking itself, streaming into different, you know, academic and vocation, that, that might not be good or might you know, have zero effects or might even be negative or have at least implications for equity. Um, but it does something to pupils already prior to the streaming, which is to in, in, in make them work hard. So though, those are the things uh, about the, the, the actual system that I think might make sure that kids, kids have incentives still to work quite hard. Well, great. The, the book, again, is Real Finnish Lessons. You can find it outside. Uh, you probably saw it for sale as you came in. Uh, thanks, uh, Gabriel, for, for coming and joining us today. I thought it was very good. Thank um, you.